Delighted to be hosting this event tonight with Graham Rose for Black Country Touring. Like the story of Fred Jeffs, I have one foot in Birmingham and another in the Black Country as a Birmingham-born West Bromwich Albion fan. Now, if you haven't heard the podcast yet, hopefully this conversation will encourage you to do so. If you have heard the podcast, then I trust this will give you a greater and deeper appreciation of what you have already heard and maybe will encourage you to go back and listen to them all again. Without any further ado, though, let me welcome the creator of the Fred Jeffs podcast, Graham Rose. Hello, Graham. Hello, Adrian. Well, I just want to start by saying how much I enjoyed the podcast. It is a, a murder mystery with elements of film noir. It's a social history opening a window on a, on a West Midlands that has kind of disappeared now. It's the human story of a man who, by virtue of his untimely death, has lived in the imaginations of other people. It's also beautifully put together as well with great music and production values. For people who don't know you, Graham, just tell me a little bit about yourself. The, the Graham Rose before this podcast, as it were. I'm a theatre maker and a performer by background. So um, coming out of uni, I formed a theatre company and it has always been my fascination and, and interest since then to the business of making theatre. Uh, creating from scratch, uh, not necessarily with a script, but finding new forms to express creativity through performance. My career has kind of grown in an, a, quite an organic way. So I, I had a company initially in Lancaster and then that naturally folded and I came back to Brom and formed a company called Stan's Caff who are now, you know, one of the foremost uh, experimental theatre companies in certainly the Midlands, if not the UK, and whose work has taken me all around the world. But I work as a, as a freelancer uh, and I work with lots of different companies all over the place. Occasionally I get the chance to make my own shows and this is the latest manifestation of that. And of course, Fred Jeffs has been a stage show with Black Country Touring and with support from Birmingham Rep. But we're going to focus tonight on the podcast. Just take us through the broad outline of the story. I'm very conscious that I had a one, one particular telling of the story initially because my, my nan told me about it. And she was reluctant to yield much information about the story itself as it happened. But I kind of found out about it almost by accident, really. He was my granddad's half-brother, my great-uncle, step-uncle, as, as you might say. But he seemed n not to be of great interest to the family. They, they marginalised him. As I found out later on, he had been murdered in 1957. He ran a sweet shop in Stanley Road, number 12 Stanley Road, in Quinton Stroke Warley. And perhaps we can talk a little bit about borders later, what, what constitutes these particular <laughs> suburbs, because it's very confusing. And at Easter 1957, which would be the, the absolute pinnacle of the sweet shop calendar, there's a mysterious person arrives in the shop, this woman, the mystery woman that nobody's seen before. And he makes an arrangement to meet her later, but nobody knows who she is or what the relationship is. But he gives us some chocolate from behind the counter. Uh, we know from police records that 
there were various witnesses that evening to his van leaving the the shop, uh, him locking up the shop, leaving in the van, and going up to Warley Woods as he did every night, really, to to, to take his dog Pero for a stroll. Uh, and on this particular Thursday evening, it would have been the end of the sweet shop week, because Good Friday being a bank holiday, uh, the banks would be closed and shop, shops would be closed. So he would take the, the week's takings to the bank's night safe on the way home from walking his dog, which seems a rather perilous kind of <laughs> sequence of events in retrospect. But we think this is what happened. And between the hours of seven and when his body was discovered the next day, we don't really know exactly what happened. It's, it's open to lots of conjecture, but his badly beaten body was discovered on Wasson, as it's known, Sandwell Valley, in a shallow grave. And that's basically the parameters of the story. And there's lots of details. And in, and in that uncertainty and in that conjecture lies the podcast, really. That's what you explore and the kind of the, the ways in which people have interpreted the possible motives for his death and what happened leading up to his death. In the final episode of the podcast, you talk about the different ways in which Fred has been interpreted by other people, because in the podcast, he's all these things. He's a sweet shop owner, of course, soldier, prisoner of war, dog lover, flashy sports car owner, ladies man, ultimately murder victim with a slight sense that something untoward perhaps was going on in his personal life. He died, of course, before you were born. So who is Fred Jeffs to you? That question really has spawned the whole project because knowing and realising that he'd been marginalised by certain family members, it sparks an interest in who this mysterious family member is. You know, we all probably have skeletons in the cupboard, but this one showed itself rather glaringly, an unsolved murder victim. And nobody seems to know about this. Nobody seems particularly interested in him. So that was an immediate, you know, spark of my curiosity. And I've always been interested in this this notion of biography. What is it that gives somebody the right to be able to tell somebody's story? when a person is so many different things uh, to, to different people. And the more people I talked to about Fred Jeffs, the more, you know, shards of the same story came up. And I realised that in the absence of any real knowledge of truth, that people make up their own stories. And that is utterly fascinating. <laughs> Was there a sense in which then that those family members were embarrassed or ashamed, embarrassed about him or ashamed of him? To a certain extent, I, th I draw that conclusion. My two aunties, um, Auntie Liz and Auntie Mary, they had always been fascinated with this story and, and, and curious. Mary was older. She'd actually left home by, the, by 1957 and uh, was married but Liz was a post-war baby <laughs> and um, and she was just a little girl so she, her memory of Fred is of the sweet shop and all the exciting you know paraphernalia that goes with with that um, but coming back to the question I think I think my my nan just wanted to brush it under the carpet kept very much kept herself to herself I and mean, she's very loving 
but there was a shadow of darkness there and she didn't really want to broach it. And similarly with my dad, I mean, he was one of the most difficult people to interview. I had to interview him by stealth. And that difference actually, I think is really remarkable because in all of the, of the people that I've interviewed, and there's about 60 odd people I've, I've interviewed for this project, there's a, there's a generational difference in how willing they are to want to talk about it. What did you get out of deep mining this family history? For me, it's been a labour of love. And to be, if people ask me how long has it taken me to do this, the truth is about 35, 40 years. <laughs> because a, a good idea, it, it, it refuses to go away. So I, w- I wrote a first draft for a, a play when I was at uni you know, in 1986. So that was the first version of this, which was utterly different, I have to say, and focused on the war years, the the, uh, the damage caused by the prisoner of war camps. But more recently, having the opportunity to investigate this through a community project at the REP, actually, it was through their furnace programme. It gave me the licence to be able to go out, meet people, and just find out what they knew and expand this germ of, a, of an idea that I had. And that has been really, really exciting because it reinforces that idea that a, a person is a community, in my opinion. You know, there are a thousand different versions of a person, <laughs> depending on who you ask. Yeah, it seems to me, though, and maybe you've arrived at this at the end rather than having it as a starting point, but perhaps you're underlying aim all along was kind of to rehabilitate Fred and kind of take it, take him away from being identified with this one terrible act in his life, which had attached to it this kind of whiff of scandal? Well, I think most people that I would talk to initially would, would suppose that my principal reason for doing this would be to solve the case, <laughs> which of course is still possible. And the spectre of that hangs over this because in a very real sense there is somebody out there I am sure who knows what happened Mm. and could lead us to you know more conclusive information about the truth of that night but actually for me it's a what a brilliant opportunity to reconnect with family history and to get close to somebody who is a dead relative yeah, and but you talked about your dad's kind of unwillingness to talk about it. Was there any active resistance from any members of the family to this, you know, deliberately going and trying to poke the, the skeleton in the closet, as it were? Well, Dad, he did talk to me, but he just, he wouldn't do it kind of formally. <laughs> and he would give his opinions. The aspect that I was most concerned about, actually, was part of the story that I didn't really know anything about, which is about... Uh, Fred's ex-wife because it struck me that that was a whole chapter of the story that I didn't have any access to she kind of disappears off the scene there are interviews in in the mail that appear there are photos of her coming out of the coroner's court or the inquest there's a scant information about her and I was anxious because I thought I've got one side of the story here I'm building a picture but actually if I could get anything of that story then it will just blow it in a completely new direction yeah no well it's fascinating and and of course it emerges doesn't it because although 
and there's some quite salacious detail of what goes on around the bunkers of Wally Woods golf course at night. But it turns out that even if Fred was a bit of a ladies man, his wife had actually left him for another man. But that only emerged later on. Yeah, it only emerges after the inquest that mm. she'd, in her in her words, she had requested a divorce a week previously and that he had agreed. There's no confirmation of that, of course. So mm. he is, Fred has agreed to a divorce. But yes, yeah, she found someone else and went to live in Bentley Heath. And I... In Soley Hall, which, Sol- of which, Soli of Hall. which much is made by the people in no the more. podcast. <laughs> Soley Hall. Well, but well, well. But that, that kind of supported for me, you know, my own speculations about Betty, obviously, that she was uh, ambitious and that she had high ideals. You know, when she meets Fred, he's working at the Austin as an electrician and she manages to persuade him to become a shop owner. And the shop opens literally a couple of weeks after the end of sweet rationing and just before the coronation. Perfect timing. Boom time for sweet shops. Interesting question coming in from Nigel Blunt, which had occurred to me as I was chatting to you there. But Nigel, good question. Thank you. Says Fred's wife, Betty, left six months before his death, presumably because of his womanising and therefore angry. And she would have inherited the shop. Surely she must have been a strong suspect. She could have colluded with the man she married a year later. What are your thoughts? Well, in the in the Birmingham Mail interview that's conducted three days after the death or the discovery of the body, at least, she claims not to have any prior knowledge of his um, philandering and says that she knows nothing about that. And that it's really difficult to say because because actually the, the newspapers are the primary source. But if you're grieving, are you going to confess that information? Mm. Ditto, her her own father says that, that, that Fred and Betty got on really well. Now, Although it is my... interesting that of the many theories that there are for a motive that are covered in the podcast, that actually isn't one, is it? That, that didn't seem to occur or never arose in the police inquiries from what we can tell. No, no, she's not considered a, a suspect. Um, but she keeps a very low profile and she disappears and I, coming back to the previous question, actually, it is a difficult one to talk about because, because quite by accident, I met a best friend of the daughter of Betty and who came to see the show, who'd, who'd heard there was a connection but had no idea that Betty and Fred were married. And so all of this information for Betty and Ken's daughter, she knew nothing about this previous life. So actually, this is quite tender and difficult. Mm, mm, I, 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 and certainly of a, of a couple of years ago, um, Betty's new husband was um, still alive. So it is quite delicate. Okay. And we, we talked there about Soley Hall and was it Bentley Heath, uh, where yeah. Betty eventually relocated. And the podcast is almost like a, a roll call of West Midlands towns and suburbs. So... Here goes. Quinton, Smethwick, Longbridge, West Bromwich, Witton, Broad Street, Langley, Oldbury, Kidderminster, Edgebaston, 
they all get a mention and a few more in making the podcast. How important was it for you that you kind of reflected that, the kind of minutiae of, of this area? This was a great opportunity for me to go and explore those areas. The two of us grew up in a similar area, Northfield. And um, as far as I was concerned, if you go over the other side of the Hagley Road, you are in a different territory altogether. It smells different. It feels different. This is Sandwell. Looking back through history, I realised that it gets even more complicated because Worley is part of Oldbury, which is part of Worcestershire. Smethwick is part of Staffordshire. Uh, Langley is part of Worcestershire, but also part of Smethwick. It's incredibly complicated and the borders just keep changing, certainly over the last 50 years. Yeah, and we'll talk a bit more about that, those kind of shifting borders and how it might have influenced the police investigation. Just talking about the podcast itself, though, because it it falls into that true crime category, which is one of the most successful podcast genres. I'm just intrigued. What, what are your theories as to why we are collectively in the Western world or in the English-speaking world obsessed with other people's deaths? Well, I do think that we are denied access to mortality in many ways. The whole business, the whole industry of death has been taken out of our hands for our own good, seemingly. <laughs> so that you, the funeral directors will deal with everything because it's such a difficult time dealing with a death. You're not necessarily in the right frame of mind to be able to deal with that. So we've evolved this industry where you know, the funeral business takes over. And actually, we lose a lot of emotional connection there to to the act itself. It's always... It's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt you there, Graham, but my mum, who is Irish, talked about even when children had died, them being laid out in the living room and being taken in to see the child or other family members being laid out, which I think to modern sensibilities seems incredibly callous you know and and how could you possibly face the death of a of an infant in your own house but perhaps at another level it does mean you're you're accommodated to death you recognize death you see death in a way that we very rarely do in modern society uh yeah absolutely and i think the the catholic faith has had a a, a different way of dealing with this historically perhaps less these days but i i think that's it's really important to be part of that process. And I know that there are there are new generation funeral companies who really want to involve you in all of the decision making. I mean, yeah. interestingly, you know, a, a year ago, I was kind of managing my own, my own dad's funeral. And I was really pleased to be able to give people responsibilities, especially the young, the young and in the family as well. Because it feels like this is an incredibly important event that we can take a kind of possession of hmm. i'm just thinking that you know this is a story from 1957 in the previous decade many of the men certainly uh, in the community would have been involved in the second world war they would have seen comrades killed they would have perhaps killed the enemy themselves the death of fred is still clearly a shock in the community because that's a very different context but I did get the sense, you know, that there was a kind of an undercurrent of violence in the story, not just relating to, to Fred's death. Well, I'm I'm really interested in that. And I think there's 
there's more scope to explore that in this project, to be honest, because my granddad and his brother Fred were both prisoners of war. Uh, Fred was caught at Dunkirk, behind enemy lines at, at Dunkirk, so he was a prisoner of war at the age of, I think he celebrated his 21st birthday, a month after being captured, <laughs> and and then spent the next five years in a in a dilapidated fort in Poznan in a POW camp. My granddad, Doug, ended up in, in a subcamp of Auschwitz. Um, but at some point, they both are, end up in the same camp, same holding camp for some reason. And then they come back from the war and that generation just don't want to talk about their experiences at all. They keep it really stum. So very little of that story gets passed on through my dad or or my aunties um which i find really curious but you allude to the the kind of you know the violence that might be visited upon children that might be visited upon wives by men who'd come back a kind of level of violence today that would be regarded as unacceptable but was perhaps commonplace in the late 50s i think so i'm really fascinated in how a certain generation who were kids in 1957 those in their 70s say have got very rose-tinted spectacles about about growing up in the fifties, uh, but actually, when you when you stop and think about it and scrutinise it, there were lots of dads who came back from the war who just had this pent-up kind of violent quality about them. They didn't know how to necessarily express it. They just kept on. These are kids who were used to being regularly given a whack. And the emergence of the teen culture is a really interesting moment. Now, and that, for me, there's a critical kind of historic moment around about 57, 56, 57. Rock and roll has just appeared. So it's like a schism in, in culture. There's a Sexual Offences Act, I think, and there's Wolfenden Report. There's various kind of papers that are, that are coming out and uh, that are changing the landscape that we come to recognise later as being the swinging 60s. But it's round about this time that everything's changing. Those years of austerity are shifting. But also the kids at that time, the, the teenagers, were war babies, basically. They've grown up with this this authoritarian spirit from their parents and they just want to kick loose. Yeah. And I think it's... Actually, it's a kind of... It's a really important idea, I think, that... All that music, Paul and John meet for the first time in 1957. Everything's changing and the kids just want to kick loose. Mm. And there's this real resistance, I think, from their parents because they want to reject those things that their parents have brought back from the war years. Yeah. You talk about that rose-tinted view as well. One thing that really struck me was that, although clearly a murder is shocking and even today if people have a murder in their road they say you don't expect things <laughs> like that to happen around here which is a good thing to hear in a way but your research into local newspapers suggested that actually even if murders were not common then violence of different kinds was commonplace i think so i mean domestic violence of course wasn't really talked about or reported um but, you know, within a couple of months of Fred's death, someone round the corner on Hagley Road uh, kills their partner and then gasses themselves. There's somebody who is 
the, the victim of a homophobic attack up on near Castle Road around that area, around Worley. Um, but a lot of these stories were just kept quiet. Maybe people didn't have as much access to daily news in the way that we do now. Mm-hmm. Interested in the practical challenges of actually constructing this story. It happened in 1957, so more than six decades ago. Obviously, many of the witnesses to the events of that time will have passed on. What were the other barriers to telling this story? Was that was that the main one? <laughs> For me, I've always I, I'm one of my major problems, issues is, is editing from a, such a vast amount of material. So that for me was a, was a, a problem of how to organise the material uh, mm. because it just it seemed to be a story that just kept on giving. The more I scratched at it, the more it would give. So going back to that, I, that, that thought that everybody wants the murder to be solved, <laughs> that was a really interesting conundrum for me. Um, I'm trying to tell the story and I'm trying to draw all the information towards a possible conclusion. But uh, director Steve Johnston was really helpful in just constantly reminding me that actually there's something more important here, (laughs) which is the victim and also the richness of all these people whose memory might be unreliable in, in ways or that they're remembering a misremembered story that their mom told them in 1963. And there's there's lots and lots of that, you know. So yeah, I, was just, I was just struck by, by the thought as you were saying that. It's, it's like almost, it's like a jigsaw with too many pieces, isn't it? <laughs> that is exactly the metaphor that, that's been in my mind, to be honest, Adrian, because it's it's like you you have a massive jigsaw box that you've got from a jumble sale. You tip out all the pieces and some of them fit together, obviously, and you're overjoyed and you think, all oh, right, this is going to be a breeze. And then other pieces fit together, but you just don't know how that little section connects with that that section. That's how it, it's been. But for me, every interview has yielded, you know, a couple of jigsaw puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. I mean, memory is, of course, notoriously unreliable, especially with the, the span of time between then and now. But it, it seems to me that you were only too happy to embrace that. There's a lovely bit in the podcast where people are just describing the shops on a particular road and they disagree about the shop names, even though they're describing the same street at the same time in the same situation. And you, you obviously, you know that memory is unreliable and you were quite happy to play with that. I feel a bit naughty about that, to be perfectly honest, because... It was funny, though. <laughs> of those two those two interviewees, I believe them both, absolutely. <laughs> but they're just describing the same shop with different names, and I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe it changed its name. There's something beautiful about that, and, and the detail of the mundane as well. You get a really strong sense when, when they're describing the shops of, you know, the hairdresser, Clary with a, with a fag hanging out his mouth as he's, <laughs> he's giving you a short back and sides. Yeah, it wasn't very friendly either, was he, Clary? So, <laughs> how did you go about finding people? To talk? Um, through the Birmingham Rep initially, we did uh, a couple of shows using local libraries actually. So, Bleak House Library in Worley and Thimble Mill in Smethwick. And I worked with those two libraries and we set up kind of interview days so people could come and visit and just talk. And that was just joyous because I piggybacked a, 
uh, old Wally history society or Smethwick local history society meetings, you know. And sure enough, you'll find people who, who remember it and have got something to say about it. Um, I also went to an old folks place very close to where my, my granny lived and my dad grew up. And uh, I joined their buffet afternoon, you know, a celebratory event. <laughs> and uh, it was such a gift because I was talking to these people who clearly had no idea who Fred was. And then I just heard this voice from the other end of the table said, Oh, he deserved everything he got. And I said, hello, who's this? <laughs> and of course, you know, it just opens up. There's a whole conversation opens up. And this, this guy, it turns out, was a little boy with his mother, who was also in, in the home. And they were buying Easter eggs on Good Friday, 1957. They were there. Mm. To, feel, to feel that I could connect to, <laughs> to that time and place so specifically was just, extraordinary yeah i mean it is that that sense of of place and time is is really strong in the piece as well and i I also a kind of sense of ongoing menace associated with it one of the contributors when you explore the kind of potential gangland connections you know one contributor who's you know quite vocal but wants to remain anonymous you know it's, it's it's what what even for something that happened in 1957, you want to remain anonymous, that that sense of menace around the story. Yeah, no, that, I mean, hearing people talking like that made me know that there was something worth pursuing mm-hmm. because people seemed to know more than they were letting on. And everything that I got was a, was a gift because I had no expectations of what I could capture. Anything was a gift, but little giveaways tiny little snippets of giveaway just made my jaw drop to the ground. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, the Italian connection gets mentioned. Mm, mm, The mm. Quinton mob. They were from Quinton. Who are these people? But, of course, it doesn't necessarily add up with with what somebody else says at all. Tell me a little bit more about the the lads early on who think they discovered the murder instrument because again i i found that episode really chilling and the the chap in the trilby hat and the trench coat that was it was it was great listening but it was it was very scary here is it's one of those situations where you you start this ball rolling and then something some story just emerges that blows your mind so it was through a smithic local history page my cousin actually james he first detected that somebody had been mentioning or referred to the Jeff's murder and said, I found the murder weapon. So we kind of trawled through and it turns out that Alan, Alan War, is uh, quite big in the Smithwick Heritage Centre and is a magpie. He's just got the most wonderful collection of pictures and anecdotes and stuff. And in some way, I think that was fueled by this extraordinary experience of when he's nine and with his lifelong pal, Ray Jones, who was a year younger at eight, they both go wandering from their homes in Sydenham Roads, North Smethwick, up to Wasson on Good Friday, when they stumble across this thing on the grass verge. And Alan picks it up. He's left-handed, so he, you know, I've got a very strong image of him with his left hand picking this thing up it's very heavy he knows what it is it's a lorry starting handle and it's covered as he finds out in blood and what he now knows to be brains 
And it can only be one thing. It is the murder weapon. And little does he know that Fred's body is lying at yards from that spot. When they find this thing, there is a guy in a Macintosh and a Trilby watching them intently. And they get scared and they, they're going further away from their homes. But then they decide to double back, bearing in mind they're eight and nine. And they run hell for leather back towards, you know, the Birmingham Road and towards the Baggies Ground. And, um, and they can hear his footsteps behind them. And he's chasing them. And they shake him off. But then there's an incident that happens within the month where Ray gets attacked and this guy tries to strangle him. And in their minds, it's the same fella. And who else could it be? <laughs> it, it could be a creepy bloke up the Wasson. But why is he taking such an interest in, in their activities and this, this starting handle? Of course, when the police find out and go back and do a thorough scan of the whole area, there's no starting handle. It's disappeared. Which leads you to believe that, that it probably was the murderer or an accomplice who's come to try and get rid of the evidence. And interestingly, Ray, this doesn't appear in the podcast, but Ray, very close to where they found the starting handle, was lots of fragments of glass from a car window. And when they see them, they think that they're diamonds. They think they've discovered diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> but here again, it, it, it makes you think, OK, has somebody thrown this out of a window as they've been escaping the scene of the crime. Mm. Mm. And and then, of course, there's the, the gruesome story of the body being discovered as well. I mean, these, these details. I talked about it being a kind of a window on a, on, on a world that has gone. And you're keen to stress that, you know, we shouldn't romanticise the past too much. But certainly the tales of the young boys, both uh, Ray and Alan and the, the lad who discovers the, the body later on, they are children i mean young children who are allowed to disappear from their parents homes all day and i think you use a phrase something like well they they were kids and kids can look after themselves and you know we live in a society now where danger stranger is very much to the foreground in that sense it was a, a completely different world yeah i think parenting has changed quite a lot as well mm. yeah yeah there's a lot of guilt, isn't there, of modern parents. You'd feel guilty about letting your kids out without watching them. The whole approach to parenting has changed. Whereas I think back in the in the 50s, mums would spend half the days doing the laundry, operating the mangle. It was a lot harder work. And so they just wanted the kids out of the way, especially if they were bigger families. Let's talk a little bit about the policing here, because there was this strange world, wasn't there? I think there's a suggestion that the body had been discovered perhaps by Staffordshire police, but shoved a couple of yards across <laughs> to make sure it fell into the Birmingham border because murder investigations were quite expensive. And you had police in Worcestershire involved as well. Forensics were only in their infancy. And I think you said that this was the first time in which film had been used to try and get the word out about the murder, the police being equipped, did you say, with pennies so they could go and use the, the phone box because they didn't have walkie-talkies? I mean, it's, it sounds incredibly primitive by today's standards in terms of policing, but also fragmented. There was no West Midlands police force, so you had these kind of turf wars between different 
neighbouring. Yeah, I suspect there was a great rivalry between constabularies as well, which which must have worked against you know the progress of many cases. So yeah, in 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 this instance, all of the crime scenes really happen on border territories, which seems like suspiciously well planned. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, maybe it was purely by accident, but Worcestershire Constabulary are dealing with one aspect. That's the shop, around the area of the shop and where the dog was discovered. Uh, Staffordshire have been brought in, that's around Smethwick, where, where the um, the van was seen scooting through. Um, the On the Wasson, it is literally right on the border. I think the road park lane is the border. And the body is discovered like a few yards over over the border. So Birmingham have to take responsibility from, from Hansworth uh, Police Station. Um, and it takes the Chief Superintendent Richards to try and call all of the forces together to try and convene all, all of the detectives. Do you think that contributed to the failure of the murder investigation? I do in a way. It certainly didn't help. But it just it just makes you realise how slow the whole process was, and that within hours the killer was gone. You know, if he'd been a hired hand, he would have disappeared completely. But the the press have a lot of weight in this, it seems. So the press are much more willing to try and pursue the mystery woman angle than they are the murderer angle, because the mystery woman is a femme fatale. <laughs> she's beautiful. She's young. She's the implication is that Fred has, you know, been philandering. Yeah, this is the woman to whom he says in the, in the sweet shop on Monday, Thursday, I'll see you later. But we never know who she is. So we, uh, the strange story of a, an actress from Wensbury who was in the original Amahara movie being awoken in the middle of the night in London by Scotland Yard detectives because somebody reckoned that she was the mystery woman. So that's a that's a brilliant example of, of <laughs> a bit of sleight of hand there because um, Valerie Gaunt was just starting her career. So it's in the interest of her agent and the filmmakers <laughs> to generate a story. Really? You think that's what was going on? Totally. Because the film, <laughs> the, <laughs> they, they've thought about it and they've thought, well, your parents live in Edgbuston. You were part of the Wensbury Hippodrome Company. Okay, that's in the right <laughs> neck of the woods, isn't it? And our film, the very first Hammer House movie, Curse of Frankenstein, gets its release a week later or the 2nd of, 2nd of May. So it's perfect timing. And again, talking about these these markers of change again, maybe you tell me that, that these days it's no different. But, you know, I know Wally Woods as a place where once a year they might have a music festival uh, where there's a few things that my kids can climb. But in those days, it had a bit of a reputation. There was uh, the monkey run which is where I think courting couples went to hang out. But then there were ladies of, how shall I put it, ill repute? That's that's how it's described by some. <laughs> I have to say that, you know, not everybody's opinion is the same. So um, there's one guy I interview who says, who grew up on Barclay Road. And he said, you must be, you've got to be joking, haven't you? The poshest road in Smethwick. Poshest road in Smethwick, he says. <laughs> But interestingly, and only today did I discover that um, 
Right at the 1st of January, 57, I think a new law was introduced which was criminalising brothels or the management of brothels. So it which immediately made me think, oh, I wonder if a lot of trade ended up going outdoors. No. I think, well, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and certainly Edgebaston, sort of further down the Hagley Road a few years later, did have a bit of a a red light reputation didn't it and again yeah. maintaining this kind of <laughs> sleazy theme apologies if there's anybody under 18 watching uh but you, you made broad street in birmingham of the time as well sound like a bit of a mini soho romancing it somewhat i think because <laughs> <laughs> i think at the time broad street was full of car showrooms in actual fact fred's dad managed one of those showrooms, Central Motor Supplies, mm. right, which is where the Australian bar now is, I think, right on that corner of Gas Street. Mm. But um, there is this implication that actually, rather than it being a local, a local incident, that there are gangs involved and that somehow the clubs and the pubs are involved. And then emerges this story that the mystery woman is potentially working in a sex club on Broad Street, or certainly in town. And that is one of the strands of the story which has perpetuated. Mm. Uh, before we finish, by the way, we're not we're not finishing just yet, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna run through the uh the theories and get you to rate them out of ten, by the way, just to put that thought in your mind. Um, but uh, one of our viewers has sent in a question saying, does the fact that the murder weapon was found and then lost imply the gangland theory as there must have been a policeman on the payroll because certainly all of the all of the key evidence disappeared in it was destroyed or misplaced yeah between 1951 and 1971 in over a 20-year period there were only five unsolved murders in the west midlands uh, and two of those were newborn babies actually so it was a very rare thing for the police not to get their man or at least come to a conclusion over a, mm, over mm, a death. Mm, mm. The numbers get skewed in, in the 70s with the pub bombings. And so that completely transforms the, you know, the landscape in, mm, mm, in terms mm, of those stats. Um, why does the information disappear? We've made requests to get stuff that's on file and Westmoreland's police don't have anything. They say that everything was destroyed or disappeared, which seems quite peculiar, even for a 60-plus-year-old unsolved murder. I don't quite understand why there are no artefacts, things that were found in the van. It all seems to have just vanished. And part of that is as a result of the different constabularies amalgamating. Um, mm. And so they just needed to consolidate this vast archive, I think. So that's partly responsible, but it seems very peculiar, which leads me to believe that, um, you know, heaven forbid that we might think that the West Midlands police during the 70s or whatever didn't do their jobs thoroughly. <laughs> well, Anyone um, who studied the history of the Birmingham pub bombings will uh, be uh, kind of nodding their heads in recognition, I think, at, uh, at this part of yeah. the story. Uh, Tell me about the most interesting thing that you found out. I just, it was just struck was you were wandering around Langley, uh, which is a small town next to Albury or part of Albury. You found this kind of cluster of Italian settlement that you were unaware of. Was, was that the kind of the most interesting thing that you came across? 
that was one one of those moments where the story just blew into a completely new yeah. territory because I was not expecting that at all. Um, and when I started to investigate, if you go to the, the, the library, central library, you can look up the uh, lists of residences, you know, who lives in certain streets. And there were lots and lots of houses that were unaccounted for. I mean, I'd driven up the road, so I knew how long the road was. But there, it was all English or Irish names and, and all the, the kind of immigrant population didn't seem to be registered, which I thought was kind of curious. But, but then when I went on a local, local history site and, and asked <laughs> about the Italian community in the 50s, phew, suddenly I've got 100 comments with all these wonderful names. And it shows you the power of a, you know, the collective brain on this. And it, it furnished me with lists of people who were selling ice cream, people who were working at um, Ackles and you know, the chemical factory in Langley. And then I started to read and discover this, this extraordinary story about largely kind of post-war immigration, but the fact that lots of po uh, prisoners of war, Italian prisoners of war, settled in, in the area. And yeah, was it Albright and Wilson they worked with? I think Albright and Wilson, wasn't it? It was Albright and Wilson, and, sorry, and, it wasn't. And they were sort of not forced labour, perhaps, but they were prisoners who were working for Albright and Wilson, but the factory owner ended up sending a ship down to Naples so that the wives could come and join them. I mean, these, these great little nuggets. And you, you came across prisoner of war camps. You mentioned, I think, there was one near the Albion Ground, which, which appear to be undocumented, but for which there is sufficient anecdotal evidence for us to be convinced that they really did exist. Yeah, exactly. I went to Kew and, I, uh, you know, the National Archive, and I was looking for for. Italian prisoners of war camps. There's nothing at all, nothing there. But then you ask people and, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right next to the Albion ground. I think on the site where the Albion Junior School yeah. was then built in 1957, or yeah, a couple of years before anyway. And also up at Hilltop, very close to where Fred's body was found, Hilltop Golf Course. Hilltop Golf Course, sort of the border between Birmingham and Sandwell there at top of that very yeah. end of Hansworth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there are some old uh, gun emplacements, the remains of that, up on a hill, which is technically on the Hansworth side, I think. And and the remains of, of an encampment where Italian prisoners of war worked. So yeah, I mean that was that was utterly fascinating to find that out. Obviously, yeah. and, that, and, and again, these little diversions—the stuff you know, the extra jigsaw pieces that come into your possession that make you think, "Have I got a piece of a completely different jigsaw altogether?" The 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 Czech guy who had a kind of shady past as well, who may or may not have been a witness to the murder. Yeah, this here again, this is another dimension to the story that I, I stumble across late in the day. So the most of the press interest has, has fizzled a little bit by this point. This is a month after the, the murder. But then a new witness appears and saying that he was too afraid to come forward because he'd been in a, in a Nazi internment camp and he was afraid of the consequences of, of coming forward. So then he gives his account, which describes everything that you'd want out of this, you know, a black sports car, doors open, engine running, um, uh, a little black dog running across the, the golf course, two people, a man and a woman, and then Fred's van driven without lights at speed, bearing in mind this is 10.30 at night, you know, away from the, the crime scene. 
So I'd taken this as read and I found it utterly fascinating to read this account, obviously, and to see pictures of him. So on Shutterstock, they've got images taken by the police of mm -hmm. him on Warley Woods with the water tower behind him pointing down the eighth tee. And um, he looks, you know, respectable fella. But then I tried to look him up um, on the internet, see if there was any record of him. And then once I put in a different spelling, discovered that there was one record, which was at CIA in intercepted Czech Secret Service webpage, which basically has him on a wanted list. Mm. And and suddenly the story is blown into you know, a <laughs> totally other dimension. Indeed. And Fred, just to add to this mystery, I mean, it's, this is a great little, it's kind of a, just a short episode, isn't it? Right towards the end of the storytelling. But it then turns out that Fred who in when he was a prisoner of war, he would disappear during the Allied bombing raids and kind of kept himself slightly aloof. At the end of the war, he was rather flush with money. How come? And, and he also went through Moravia, which was the part of Czechoslovakia, where this mysterious witness came from. And, you know, you could end up putting a whole story together or not. It is a mystery, but... I could, you know, you're scratching your head with these details, but they're fascinating. I, like I say, it's the story that just keeps on giving. But, but for me, one of the most extraordinary things about this is that the story from the, the prisoner of war camp and him being selfish, not sharing his own uh, Red Cross parcel, disappearing during bombing raids, acting furtively. That was the thing that most interested me. And that doesn't even appear in the podcast, really, <laughs> you know, or, or very... You know, yeah, skim, at the end. Yeah. I feel that there's a whole other dimension to this which I would like to explore which is about finding out what happened to that generation who were in those prisoners of war camps mm -hmm. that extraordinary journey that they would have undertaken being force marched west into Germany seeing their comrades colleagues dying of starvation on the side of the road or being shot by the, the German officers um there's an extraordinary, powerful and dark narrative that they chose to kind of keep quiet mm. because they wanted to start afresh, really, after the war, you know, a, a land fit for heroes. Put it, put it all behind you and all that, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the, the role of sound and music as well in the storytelling because they're a very important part of it. Well, I've always had a, a very keen interest in the relationship between music and text. And I'd worked before with Sam Frankie Fox and Ricardo Rocha, otherwise known as Fox and Rocha, uh, on pieces with, with Sam's earlier company, Kindle Theatre, latterly known as Kiln Ensemble. And um, it's, it's been a beautiful relationship, a really great symbiotic kind of relationship where you can suggest something and and they they're multi-instrumentalists and they'll come up with the goods so i initially provided a playlist of tracks from 1957 with frankie lane and lonnie donegan and and all this there's loads of really pertinent beautiful tracks alma cogan you know there's a kind of exotica that's creeping into british music rock and roll is a dangerous threat that's coming closer but uh they took these sounds and they created the most wonderful set of pieces 
from which the um, soundtrack has been constructed. And and Sam and Ricardo have got such a uh, an elegant way of doing things and such a sympathy with the story as well. It's been it's been a great collaboration, which I'm I'm very proud of. Mm. All right, I'm going to go through the various murder theories now then and see if you can kind of sum them up and and tell me what you think of them because the murder does remain unsolved so the police's first suggestion then was was that robbery was the motive and we know that money did go missing yeah i mean it's the most obvious thing there's money missing from the till we think about 91 pounds and crucially there are two crisp five pound notes missing from the till and that's a lot of money in those days it's not a five bob note it's five pounds that is spent by a mr coles mogford of gillet road edgbaston <laughs> <laughs> some listeners wondering or some viewers wondering what what is a five bob note <laughs> 50p basically um, in today's money we know that there's money missing and fred keeps a close eye on his money it there's a suspicion that he's he's uh, burrowing money away under the floorboards when i speak to the people who take over the shop you know 30 years later all the floorboards are loose and they find holes in the plasterwork he's been frightened of losing his money and he has a, an air pistol for protection uh, he'd also been robbed at the christmas beforehand so he's scared of a robbery it's it's the obvious one Mm, okay, so we're sort of what ranking that seven, seven out of ten, oh, maybe. It's yeah, seven and a half at least. Oh, okay, okay. Eight, it's, you know, it's, okay, so then the, uh, the, easy the mystery woman falling in love with a woman from the wrong family. So, or, or the mystery woman luring him. Yeah, so there's there's two options here. One is that they have met at some place or other, perhaps at Woolly Woods, <laughs> or perhaps in a club in mm. town on mm. Broad Street. Mm. He has fallen for her, and maybe he wants to liberate her. He's, his wife has left him six months previously. He's on his own, he's lonely, he wants company. Um, but perhaps the mystery woman is actually luring him towards his demise. Maybe she's just sussing him out. She knows he's got cash. He's got a flash car. Well, a nice new van. He's a man of means. Alternatively, the woman he's seeing, if it's the mystery woman that's seen in the shop on, on Maundy Thursday, then she's in her early 20s. She's quite a bit younger than Fred, who's 37. And it could be that the family find out and and want to take revenge. Yes. Both, they're both sort of, they're, they're, they're kind of middle ranking, possibly. It's, it's worth pointing out that in one, sorry, Adrian, one of the, yeah. one of the stories I got from Terry, who, who grew up in Cape Hill, a woman or a girl who lived two doors up from him commits suicide not long after the, the murder. And his suspicion is that she might be the mystery woman. But it's and, very and that she may even have been pregnant. And that she may have Fred's been pregnant child. with yeah, Fred's yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah. There's the ice cream wars <laughs> theory as well, that, that he was starting to build up his ice cream business and, and was tangling with the Italians who reckon they own that trade. Well, yeah, if the, uh, if, if the mystery woman is a kind of seven and a half, eight, then the ice cream wars is a firm three, probably. But it's uh, <laughs> this follows the theory that 
if there is an Italian connection <laughs> and that the, the Italian community are quite protective of their own business interests in the Langley area, mm-hmm. is it possible that Fred has tried to deliver ice cream on someone else's turf? Because we know that he made deliveries in his van. Mm. Those are the main theories, aren't they? And then whether there was some connection with this mysterious Czech refugee as well. What's his name? Jan Achchenit. Jan Achchenit. But yeah, and, and, and interestingly, as I say, there is a possibility that Fred has come into money. Maybe he's been operating under some kind of false pretense. Maybe he's actually been working for the Secret Service himself and has supplied information or he's got involved in some kind of weird... Um... Yeah, and then possibly as well that he's got information on a, on some, maybe a sex gang operating out, operating out of Broad Street. I mean, there's, there's so yeah. much more to go. I mean, and, and this, I suppose, is where, you know, some of the, the that element of it is where some of that kind of sense perhaps of shame for the older generation came. But... Overall, I mean, do you feel that you have rehabilitated Fred, that you've kind of kind of endowed him again with the sense of being a, a human being, not just a murder victim, not just a newspaper headline? I had no idea how well known this case would be. Mm. And the more I dig, the more I find. And it's still very, very much alive in the memory of, of some people. Mm. And and for others, they remember their parents or grandparents talking about the case. So I, I take some pride in, in yeah, rehabilitating, as you say, this story, breathing life back into it again. And final question then, is there any any more you can do on this? Any further to go on the story yeah, of Fred Jeffs? There is, there is. There are, there are more bonus bits that I wanted to put out. I found various little kind of strange bits of kind of paranormal association. So there's somebody I was talking to who worked at Steelhouse Lane, who found during one of their ghost nights, highly speculative in itself, <laughs> but the names Fred and Stanley Road were mentioned by a, a mm. spirit in Steelhouse Lane lockup. So that's uh, aroused my curiosity, obviously. <laughs> there is. I, I, I spoke to someone whose dog always stops. Just she walk walk the dog on Sandwell Valley, but the dog won't go anywhere near where we think that Fred's body was left. Mm. Sixty years later, I would love to be able to pursue the um, Secret Service angle and find out mm. any more about that. And I've requested a coroner's report, which might give us a few more details. That's gone quiet. So it'd be great to find any archive material sloshing around somewhere. All right. Well, if people are watching and they've got any more to offer, hopefully they'll get in touch with you. Thanks to Alan, who says he's really enjoyed it. He says it's brilliant. So uh, thank you, Alan. And Bobby says, don't leave it another 35 years before the next series. Graham, thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed chatting about this with you. If you haven't seen or listened to Fred Jeff's The Sweet Chop Murder podcast, please do so. It's brilliant. Available on all major podcast platforms. And if you've listened to it once, I can vouch for the fact that it's well worth listening to again. So, Graham, thanks very much indeed.
This interview was originally broadcast as a free live event produced by Black Country Touring. BCT is a charity which promotes arts, events and activities across the Black Country boroughs and beyond. You can visit the website bctouring.co.uk to make a donation, which is very gratefully received. You can also subscribe to updates and follow future Black Country Touring activities, including news of more podcasts on the social media platforms. Just search for at BCT underscore touring. Thanks very much for listening.